on the apartment building. Can you upgrade this to a third lawn? This is the working part. Be advised, we have a woman trapped on the balcony on the fourth floor alpha bubble corner. We were unable to make our rescue. We're making a rescue now on the alpha side. So welcome to another edition of Undercover Mental Health. Sitting today, actually, I'm not sitting with them. Where are you? I'm in Casa Grande, Arizona. Yeah, I'm sitting with a friend of mine who's holidaying. How long you go down there for? Well, we've been traveling since November. Wow. Okay, so you retired as a chief fire prevention officer. Is that correct? Yes. I, I don't think we ever worked on the same shift, but we worked at the same hall where you were, you were a captain. And that was probably one of the busiest halls in our department. Yes. You have a very cool story. You were a mentor to me. I mean, I started speaking in high schools in the 90s. You're the person that brought me into a gateway program, kind of opened the doors for me to start speaking in high schools. Do you want to talk about what that program was a little bit? Well, that program was high school students that were struggling in school. And then I would go in there and bring people like yourself in to talk and share your experiences and become a mentor for these guys who struggled in high school. They were um, expelled. And the only reason that they, they could stay in school was to take this course. It was a powerful program. You know what? It was so powerful for the facilitators. But for me personally, there was so much growth in working with great kids. I mean, people that I'm sure if I met them today, they turned into be amazing human beings that just got mixed up in drugs, were in a bad way. And I, there was a lot of personal growth for me to be part of that positive story. And we had a lot of positive outcomes out of that program. Yes. And to be honest with you, I was doing it against the Chiefs. Uh, orders. Well, you were also getting a lot of pushback uh, from the school board, from teachers that didn't feel we had police officers in there and we had uh, professional football players in that program. Yes. You got a lot of pushback from that program because I think parents weren't too excited about admitting that their kids may have a drug issue or a mental health issue or suffering from depression. They didn't want that label on their kids. So that's where I think you being that front door guy for this program, I mean, you took a lot of heat and thankfully you plowed through it and, and you, I'm sure, saved a lot of high school kids' lives and they're out there giving back to the community. So if I've never said thank you for that, thank you right now for that. Well, it was my pleasure because I did get some very positive feedback from some kids later on, three or four years later while I was, again, in the chief's position, I got letters. I got a, a Christmas card from one kid that said that if it wasn't for that program, he would have still been in a gang. We worked in a crazy city. It was kind of like Canada, South Central. You know, we had yes. gangs. We had shooting, stabbings. We had a lot of movement of, you know, heroin and cocaine because we're on the U.S. border. But we also, we had a large biker gang element and we had a lot of grow offs of meth labs in our city. I mean, I'd say more than any city in Canada. Would you agree with that? Well, absolutely. Because as you well know, I was the captain in charge of the takedown grow up team because I was the assistant to the fire chief, which gave me the authority to make entry into homes that I believed were in danger. And we took down 300 grow ops in 18 months. Yeah, pretty amazing. 
And you know what? I, I bet you I've responded to, I'm going to say over a hundred grow ups, but half of those grow ups, there was always a clandestine lab attached somewhere on that property. Quite so, often. When I was working with the RCMP doing those takedowns, we hit meth labs. Yeah, it was, it was pretty scary at times. Well, you know what? I think back to that time and that crew that I worked with, I was on a shift and you were on another shift there as a captain. You were just doing normal duties then. We yes. responded to the majority. We called it the Bermuda Triangle. It was a really tough part of our city. It was where 90% of the gangs and the drugs were. And I met up with that crew that I worked with. Two years ago, one of our, our fellow firefighters passed away to cancer and we were all there and we had never been back together because we come from a big department, hundreds of firefighters. We had never been together as one since 2004. So we took a picture. It was super cool picture. And we talked about, you know, we figured we'd been in over a hundred grow ups and maybe three to four dozen clandestine labs. And about two weeks after that service we were at, I get a phone call from uh, my old captain actually. He goes, hey, you know that picture we took? I said, yeah, it was so cool. He goes, look at it. So I look at it and he goes, what do you see? And I go, I see six goofballs. He goes, no, what do you see? Look at it again. So I had a tumor against my carotid artery in my head. The surgeon said it was the weirdest tumor he had ever seen. He'd been doing surgery for 20 years. Another one of our guys had a tumor against his uh, spinal column, never returned to work. One of our guys on that shift lost his leg below the knee to cancer, our captain, prostate cancer, and another crew member, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Five out of six guys get sick. Geez, I wonder if it's because we went to all those clandestine labs and maybe those grow-ups. Could well be, for sure. You can't say, but it is awful coincidental that five guys on one crew all get sick. Coincidental? Sure. Is it probable? You know, it's, it's the nature of the beast of our job, that's for sure. We talk about exposures and stuff, and one of the reasons I, uh, I mean, you're a friend of mine and actually I started this podcast just calling friends and I'm still doing that actually I have so many friends with great stories you have one of the greatest stories because I don't know a human being that's been as low as you have and recovered and not just to recover but to live a really good life I know you got some health challenges now that are job related but you really really are a, a poster a poster person for if you're in a valley you can recover and here's why Meet my friend. For the listeners, they don't have any idea what I'm about to say, but you're in recovery. You've been in recovery for how long? 22 years, February 1st. I'll never forget when Helen, my wife, and myself went to your 10-year cake. And I had never been to a Naranon meeting before, never. And all the people that walked up and thanked you for saving their life. And I, I realized at that moment that drug addiction is a brutal thing to go through. But there is a positive side if you come out of it. How many firefighters, police officers, paramedics, do you think stay in that drug addicted state throughout their whole career? Like, do you think there's a lot? Do you think there's... When you attended that NA meeting ten, uh, in my 10th year, that was the beginning of me wanting to help firefighters, police, because I spent 40 years military and fire service. My grandfather was an alcoholic. My dad was an alcoholic. I was an alcoholic. And then it was all work-related as far as I'm concerned, because I can still remember working with captains, one particular captain who carried a flask of scotch in his turnout gear. And whenever we attended fires or a medical call that was 
over the top. It was have a drink, it'll help you forget. And that's what I did because I'm a very emotional person. So when I went to a decapitation, a mutilation, a, a shooting or a motor vehicle accident, I'd become very emotional. So the next thing I would do to forget was drink. Then when I was 35, one of our fellow firefighters showed me cocaine. That was the magic drug. I looked at him the first time I did it and said, where has this stuff been all my life? Because I forgot instantly. And for the last two years of my addiction, I was spending $1,000 a day, which put me into bankruptcy, of course, which cost me two homes. You know, I gave my ex-wives homes and it took 13 years of recovery. And by that time, I was retired. I'm living in a, you know, like I'm making financial decisions that are so much better. You know, I, I drive, I vacation in a 40-foot bus and I travel I travel the world because of recovery, because of proper decisions, because I deal with my emotions and my feelings because I surrender to the fact I don't have all the answers. I reach out for help and I take that help and move with that. And that's what brought me to the place that I'm in today. Well, for someone who's struggling out there, not necessarily a frontline worker, a police officer or a firefighter, somebody who is where you were at, what could you say to them to wake them up? You worked with me getting my brother in and out of recovery places. And at one point you said to me before he passed away, he's not going to make it. I remember you saying that to me and I was very angry with you at the time, but you were right. I could get him to that water. I just couldn't get him to drink it. He never but, wanted to take responsibility for where he was at. And, you know, and it's hard for some people to make that decision. And it needs to be a decision. It's no different than I started an AA meeting here at this resort that I'm at. And just on Tuesday night, another woman, three days sober, showed up and looked at us in desperation looking for help. And she had no idea what to do. And all we did was we told her our stories and she could relate to it. And she was willing to make, she's now willing to make the choice. I've got a funny story. The first night that I started the meeting was I put it in what we call next door. It's a, in this neighborhood, there's, there's a program called next door. So you can put sell stuff or make, well, this lady read the fact that I had started this AA meeting. She came in, she pointed at me and called me some nasty names and said it was all my fault that she was here at the AA meeting because she felt guilty because she was drunk when she read it and she went, I need help. Where you're at. I think most people in the department knew where you were at, but mm -hmm. all of us look the other way. And I kind of kept you at a distance. I didn't want anything to do with you or I just didn't want to get into your business. That was your business. I didn't want to go there. I don't even know where you went. We've never had this conversation, but where did you go after that? You ended up going to the last door? Well, yeah, the last door, I, when I got suspended from work, I went to the last door. Uh, the first time, actually, let me, let me rephrase that. I went in for a 28-day spin wash, which didn't work. So you ended up leaving the job, going into a 28-day 28, 28 program, and it, that wasn't effective? No. Okay, why wasn't it effective? What happened after you came back? As soon as I... As soon as my wife at the time, who I've divorced, showed up to pick me up, she had cocaine all laid out waiting for me when I walked out the door. And we left for Vegas the next day. Wow. And then it was two years after that when I went to the last door and I went to the last door for four months. And that's where I got into the steps. That's where I got realized that you can be sober 
and and clean and still have fun because if you're not having fun in recovery you're not doing it right and it was the last door that taught me how to do that when i got out of the last door i divorced that woman because she continued on using that's the history and from that point in time i've been sober i've been clean and um making some pretty good decisions and saving lives you came out of recovery four-month program you saved a ton of lives from that time until now. It's been amazing. You might not remember, but how did you know my brother wasn't going to make it? Why would you let me know that? And the reason I'm asking this question is because my wife said to me, she was worried it was going to cost us everything. You stepped up and said to me, he's not going to be able to make it. And was that to tell me to just step back? Just to give you an idea, my stepdaughter, who introduced me to my wife because she was in recovery and we used to go to the jails, youth jails, and talk about experience, strength, and hope to youth. Well, she relapsed after seven years being clean and sober. I cut her out of our life. We had to do that because I was not going to support her addiction. But she, all, I also made it very clear to her that if she is willing to be in recovery, was willing to do the work, I will be the first one in line to help her. That's a tough decision. And with your brother, just the stories, how he was acting, how much work that you put in trying to save his life, and he was blowing you off, being the fact that I've seen it so many times. If he can, and I think I probably worded in a fashion, if he continues on this path, he's not gonna make it. And all it's gonna do is make you sicker. My stepdaughter, until she came back, asked for help, and now she's got, now she's eight years sober, and she's doing marvelous. She's and she's very successful entrepreneur, and she's doing absolutely marvelous because she helps so many other men and women in recovery. The twelve-step program. You know, listeners might not know what the last door is, but it is a facility in New Westminster, Canada, and it is one of the most successful programs I'm going to say in the world, but certainly in North America. Absolutely, and it's gone. It it's gone worldwide. They've had people from China, Taiwan, all over the world come and copy their programs. And it has expanded so far. When I was there, there was only 20 guys in the, in the recovery house. Now there's 80. There's a facility is so large now, and it's doing marvelous. You have, I don't want to say the perfect life, but you know, I look back on that time with my brother and you know, I'm going to be honest, you can grow from every, every single bit of adversity you have in your life. I don't ever want to go through that again. I don't want my family to ever be exposed to that again. But it is a fear for even my own kids. Like I honestly tried to scare the shit out of my kids when it's come to drugs. And the one thing I can say to them, like, I've never even tried weed. Yeah, I was a bad kid. I broke into things, stole things. All my buddies did weed. I sat right, right beside them. So I guess I'm the opposite of Bill Clinton. I inhaled, but I didn't actually do it. I, uh, I, I've never actually done the act of, of smoking weed. And when I go into high schools, Xanax, Molly, and weed right now are the big drugs because I still do that drug talk that I did in the 90s that, you know, with those kids in that gateway program, it's almost exactly the same. I show pictures of clandestine labs. I talk about how the drugs are made. I talk about what happens to you when you have to do weed every day. And, you know, I, I just did some presentations in Hawaii last year and I did four of them. And the kids all had the same message. I suffer from anxiety. It helps me with the anxiety. I said, how much do you smoke weed? And they were between two to five a day. And I'm like, I know why you got anxiety. Because as soon as you try and stop, you got anxiety. Like, and it's really hard to talk to a kid that's so stressed. 
people say they really hate to hear because that program was called the gateway program. That weed is a gateway to another drug. Well, you know what? So is alcohol. So is trauma. Trauma is the newest gateway to drugs. There are so many things that are gateway to drugs, but yeah, weed is a gateway to drug. And trust me, I was no saint. I made up for it in alcohol 10 times over by not doing drugs. And one of the things I was injured and I had a bunch of bulge disc and I, I lost a feeling below my knee and I was on morphine and Demerol and Robaxaset and Celebrex all at the same time. And then I stayed on morphine and Demerol for close to a year. And that part of my life was uh, not a happy one. And I suffer from depression. I, I don't have uh, lows for depression. My wife would say, you would never know Steve is depressed. depressed. But I know when the seasons change, I got to inflate my tires a little more. I know when I see trauma. I got to inflate my tires a little more. So I've done enough clinical counseling in my life that I know that I have depression and I just have to work on it every day. I'm not medicated. I don't take any depressants, but I really feel that people that are in a spot where they're doing weed every single day, it's not a good place to be. But having said that, you're in a lot of pain. You're fighting some health challenges. You were on morphine and Demerol and you're not anymore. Correct. So what are you I doing? Well, I... I take a um, gabapentin, which is a medication for an anti-seizure drug to stop the muscles from firing, which isn't working. I'm still struggling from that. But the neurologist put me on a CBD oil, and that has removed the pain from my right leg. And now people ask, well, you're in recovery. Well, it's the medication. I was prescribed this medication, and I take it like a medication, and I'm very upfront and open with my wife. I don't hide it. I don't take too much. I take exact amount because it's a medication. It's no different than when I was on morphine for a month due to my kidney operation. It's a medication. Did I abuse it? No. I took it. I was straight up and very honest with the wife, and I became very accountable to my doctor. Whenever I went in to see my doctor, I took my pills with me to prove to him that I wasn't taking an excess amount. And that was no different than when I was, when I came out of the last door, I signed an agreement with management that at any time they wanna piss test me, I'd be more than willing to do it because I knew I was gonna stay in recovery and I'd never do drugs or alcohol again. You said something there that you were uh, honest and accountable to your doctor, but I try and be a casual drinker. So I try every once in a while, you know, I'll do two beers or two glasses of wine. If I do three, I'm heading for trouble. It's hard for me to, there's a fine line between two and three, mm -hmm. and six and eight. But my point is I have to be accountable to myself. And I think that's kind of what you're saying. Like it's a fine line. So I know if I'm going to have two beers, there's a cost. I'm borrowing from tomorrow in a little bit. So I have to be so accountable to myself. It's going to be over a dozen years. I've been speaking. I'm a road safe speaker for an insurance corporation. And about 12 years ago, I realized I've been to so many MVIs where impaired drivers were involved that I decided that if I ever had one drink, I would never drive. I would never get in a car after one drink. And the reason I do that, and I still do that to this day, is because I'm not smart enough to know when I've had three drinks if I'm not impaired. I don't know that. I had to be accountable to myself. Is it a perfect plan? No, it is not. You know, I, I think I look at what you just said. And it, when you first told me you're doing CBDs, I was blown away that because you're in recovery. It blew me away. That has to be healthier than do, taking morphine or Demerol. Absolutely. And you got to remember, one is too many 
and a thousand is never enough. I'm not willing to feel crappy the next day. The consequences are too great. Well, in full transparency, just like I just tried to justify my drinking to you, yeah. I try and justify it to myself. I, I'm working with, a, actually, I'm working with two firefighters right now. And one police officer, kind of, I haven't heard from him in a while, but one of the firefighters is pounding back the booze. And I said, you know what? I can't do this. Like you can't phone me and I be your clinical counselor. I don't have those skills. I'm just a dude. You need to go to get a health professional that's going to help you formulate a plan. I know I do. I know I'm going to do that. And he's never done it. It's been months. So here's what I said. I care for you. You're a great human being. I've been down that path and it didn't work out well for me. I'm going to ask you one favor. And I asked him how much he's drinking. He told me, and I said, look, get a small win, cut it in half. Just start at every day, hold yourself accountable to not go past this point. And now he hasn't phoned me in a while. So I'm pretty sure he's not doing that. But when he does phone me, I'm going to ask him to cut it in half again. I know that is not the right way, but you know, I had a hockey player on my show and he was in four recovery clinics before he finally got help. And what he said was he wasn't ready to do it. And the biggest problem I find with firefighters and even myself when I was in my worst way is it's a huge commitment. I didn't want to do it. I get why they don't want to do it. I do believe you can chip away at people and bring them down and they can find a way to be accountable for themselves. I do really believe that, honestly. Do you? It's an easier commitment not to drink because there's no consequence. And the justifying part that you're going through right now, you don't need to go there. You just need to go, I'd rather not have to deal with this in my head. If I, didn't, if I don't drink, I don't have to deal with this. I don't have to justify my drinking. I don't have to justify anything other than the fact that I'm sober, I'm having fun, and I got a clear head every morning. As I'm telling you that, I'm trying to be tr really transparent and honest when I do these podcasts. So I'm going, <laughs> oh shit, I'm totally justifying what I'm doing to yes, a, re a recovering addict who can see straight through exactly <laughs> what I'm trying to do on my own freaking podcast. So anyways. Um, nice try. Yeah, I agree. Dumb, I'm a dumbass. In the fire service, we, there's two terms, dumbass and stupid dumbass. So that was almost a stupid dumbass maneuver. But anyways. At least you're open-minded enough to listen and to think about it. And that is what many, like your brother wasn't open-minded. He was very close-minded because it, in, when I was in my active addiction, it was easier to stay stoned because I didn't have to think than it was not to. But then once I got sober and I got clean, it would, I realized that it was just a shit lot of work to stay because I was just imagine I was spending a thousand dollars a day. I spent six hundred thousand dollars on drugs in two years. Wow, yeah. So there was a lot of not very kind things I did to be able to raise that kind of money. So, you know, and I put myself in a position of debt. So, you know what? It's easier to stay sober and clean than it is to use drugs and alcohol once you get in a position of comfort. And you know, the other nice thing is having a couple of bucks in your jeans every day. Yeah, it's not the best way to spend your money. Okay. No. I talk to kids and I talk to my own kids a lot. And you know, I ask for honesty. That's all I ask for from them. And I say, if you ever need help or something happens where you need me, I will be there for you unequivocally. It doesn't matter what it is, but I yeah. will care for you while you're in this world, no matter what. And so I built a cool relationship with my kids, but they tell me, 
my son was in a, one of Canada's top universities. He said every weekend, every party he goes to, there's Coke everywhere. My daughter in high school, she ended up getting recruited to a, one of Canada's most prestigious private schools to play hockey. And at the grade nine level, they're doing cocaine. Wow. So it's disheartening. I, I go into schools and I have to tell you, I leave some days not feeling like I made a big difference. I, I, I've developed a very good presentation, something I'm really proud of. I usually have a lineup of kids, a dozen kids maybe, or a couple kids will chase me out to my car and we'll have a little chat. And I believe in this generation. They are kind, they're smart, but they are so stressed and overwhelmed. And drugs for them is the temporary answer. That's their terminology. They're invincible, right? Yep. We were all invincible at some point, but we've seen enough death and destruction. You have lived through it. I mean, it can be a dark, nasty world out there when drugs are involved. And you know what? And alcohol and, and trauma. Like those are the three things that if I look back on my career that I would really like to bring to the forefront. I mean, I lost a buddy to depression not so long ago. And I, that's what started this whole being vulnerable, just talking openly and honestly and hoping somebody's listening. And they go, you know what? If that dude could do that or talk like that, I can be accountable for myself. You've changed your life. And I wish people could see you. Because you were in the darkest, darkest place. You're living an amazing life. Well, there you go. I want to thank you for being on the show. Well, you know what, Steve? I'm here for you at any time. And for anybody that needs help, you know that get my number. You're the man. You All are right, the buddy. Man. Okay, take care. Love Thanks so much. You take care. Bye now.